So how many of you like to play games, right? There's all kinds of different games in the world, of course. There's board games and video games and sports games. And kind of what's interesting is, you know, you grow up playing a game a certain way, and then you meet somebody years later and you start to play a common game together. And you notice that there's little variations in your rules, and so you have to kind of figure out which rules to follow and all that. So you have house rules, usually like at our house, you know, we play Pinnacle a certain way, we go to Ryan and Christine's house, there's a little different rules how we, how we score things, right? Well, Stella has a new game, uh, it's, it's an old game, but it's a new game, uh, it's called Hide Seek. It's just like Hide and Go Seek, only she says Hide Seek. And the way that uh, she usually plays this game is, she waits till I'm reading a book or relax and don't want to get up, and then she says, Hide Seek! Then, you know, she, she'll grab my finger and say, walk! And um, she's pretty strong for only turning two next month. Uh, oh, yeah. It's December. Thank you. This, this month. Well, yeah. Yes, yes. Don't tell her I said that. Yeah, she's... <laughs> She gets me up, and, um, and, and once this happens, Sophia, who's invariably in the room, um, knows just what to do. She says, I'll find you. And now I put the dorky air quotes up there because Stella only has four places where we're allowed to hide, so Sophia doesn't really have to find us. We're either in the stairwell, laying in the bathtub, in this obvious corner in my study that you can just see when you walk in the door, or behind her chair in her room, so Sophia doesn't really have to do much. So what happens is she says, walk, she pulls me into one of these four designated hiding spots, and uh, Sophia is supposed to count to 20, right? So she can, she can do that now. She's five years old. Um, so typically what happens is like, I get Stella in the corner, and then I go to kind of shield us, and I turn around. Blah! Sophia's already there, like hasn't even counted to 20 yet. She's there. Or the opposite extreme happens where she counts to 20, says, ready or not, here I come. And then she never comes, never comes, because she gets distracted with a toy or something like that. And just, so Stella and I are just sitting there forever. The point is, whenever Stella and I go hide, we never know how much time we really have. Like, we think we have 20 seconds, but Sophia's 20 seconds are different than any I've ever rendered in my life. So... I was thinking about this new version of hide-seek and how it correlates to Advent. See, Advent, on the one hand, is a season of anticipating a celebration. We celebrate every year that Jesus came. He came a long time ago. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Awesome thing to celebrate. It's there. Every calendar year, December 25th, Heck, it probably wasn't even, he wasn't even really born probably on December 25th, but it's there on our calendar. So dang it, that's when we celebrate it. It's just like playing hide-seek, and you know where the person is going to hide. It's there. It's obvious. It's easy. But Advent is more than simply remembering something that happened a long time ago. It's also a season of anticipation and preparation for what? For the second coming of Jesus. It's a season for longing for Jesus to come and establish his good rule, for him to come back and bring his kingdom in full. That day is also known as the day of the Lord. People, uh, especially prophets in the Old Testament, often talked about this day of the Lord, when God himself would come and reign. He would, he would free those oppressed by sin and evil, and he would judge those who were the oppressors, right? Now, I don't know about you, but it's far easier for me to anticipate, to get ready for Christmas Day, the date on the calendar that comes every year. It's easier to do that than it is for me to anticipate and get ready for Jesus' 
second coming. I, maybe it's because I'm a middle-class white guy in America, I don't live every day with this sense of urgency, with the sense of anticipation that today could be the day he comes back. You know what I'm talking about? Not being a middle-class white guy for all you ladies, but you know what I'm talking about. You're probably not putting it there in your front of your mind all the time. I mean, how often do we think, Jesus could come back today? How often do we think, what would it be like if he came back today? What would that look like? What does it mean to let every heart prepare him room, like Joy to the World says? Maybe the bigger question is, would I want him to come back today? Well, it's obvious that I don't live every day with a sense of urgency, and I know from talking to many of you, you probably don't either. But scripture says something quite different. Scriptures like Matthew 24, which Charles read earlier, tell us, tells us that nobody knows the minute or hour or the day when Jesus is going to return. So just like Sophia sneaking up on me in a game of hide-seek, he could just pop up and be there when you're thinking you're hiding in the corner. You think the game should be played like this, like Jesus should give you 20 seconds, that you should have some kind of pre-warning before he comes. But Scripture says, hey, don't worry about signs. Don't worry about when he's going to come. Scripture is big on saying, just be ready. Just be ready, because you're not going to know it when it happens, or before it happens. When, you, when it happens, you'll know it. So this evening, we're going to see some ways that we might prepare ourselves for this second advent. Now, this is the second week of our deal. And if you weren't here last week, you weren't in on the deal. So let me tell you what the deal is. The deal is that we made with each other is that you were going to give me two weeks in Matthew's genealogy. And I promised two things. I said I wouldn't bore you and that if you gave me two weeks in the genealogy, I promised that your experience with Advent and with the rest of Matthew's gospel would be more pleasurable, more fulfilling, a little bit deeper. Now, for those of you who were here last week, are we doing okay so far? Eh? Hmm? Okay, all right. Got some good feedback last week. We'll see, we'll see how we do. So, what we're going to do is, I'm going to ask you to stand once again, and I'm going to read this list of names. I debated doing this or not, and I, you know, I would read any other scripture, so I'm going to read this one. Just let's, let's barrel through. And play detective. Play detective with me. Notice if I'm saying the same names that you read in the same... Um, well, well, we'll get to that. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abiha, and Abiha was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. 
Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah, and Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the, the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel became the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud, Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Matham, and Matham the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Oh God, help us. You put this list of names here for a reason. And though we are so far removed from the context and the culture, we pray that by your Spirit, you would enlighten us. That you would speak to us, that you would give us the word that you've prepared for us in advance. And may we have courage to obey. In your name, Jesus the Christ, amen. You may be seated. That was a mouthful. And I, I know, I know, right? Really? List of names, that's why I came... Well, let me do a little bit of a review from last week in case you're here for the, the first time because um, it's important. What we, what we saw last week was that Matthew 1.1, there's a very interesting word order. And the first two words in the Greek language of that, of that first sentence are biblos geneseos. You're like, so what? This is more boring than the names, Chris. Well, let me tell you what that means. Book of Genesis. Book of Beginnings. And we often, in our English Bibles, it's not translated that way. It's like the book of genealogy or something like that, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. But really, one way to, uh, and a very accurate way to translate this would be the book of Genesis wrought or produced by Jesus the Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. And what Matthew is saying is a bunch of things here in the, that first sentence. He's saying that Jesus is connected with the line of Abraham, which means that he is from the line of the ideal Israelite. He's saying that Jesus is also connected with the line of David, which means that he is from the line that the Messiah was going to come from. And that with Jesus' new arrival, Jesus' arrival is a new Genesis, book of Genesis. It's a, it's a new beginning to the way the world works, to the way the universe works, because Jesus is now breaking in to our world. It's a new beginning. We learned a little bit about genealogies, that genealogies in the ancient world weren't strict histories, right? They're not exact, and they didn't mention every single generation. But genealogies were more like an ancient resume. Two main kinds of people had genealogies that they were strict about keeping, and those were priests and they were kings. And so a genealogy, just like an ancient resume, would tell you, first of all, what, um, what credentials you have to be a ruler or a priest. And second, you could kind of tell from a person's background what kind of priest or what kind of king they would be like. What kind of rule could you expect from them? 
Now, like an ancient resume, you would really only want things in your genealogy that look good. Sorry, ladies, but in the ancient world, you wouldn't want any women's names in there, and you wouldn't want any unsavory characters, which is why in, in Jesus' genealogy, you've got these big names like Abraham and David. But oddly, there are these strange names that we talked about last week. There's Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, not only for women, but for Gentile women. And not only for Gentile women, but for Gentile women with questionable moral backgrounds, right? Last week, we saw how these names being in Jesus' genealogy show that Jesus is part of the historical mission of Israel. That mission of Israel has always been, since, since God made a covenant with Abraham, to include all of the nations. To include all of the nations. To draw all people, women and men, Jew and Gentile, People with spotless records, if there actually were any, and people with unsavory records, into the worshiping community of God. That's great news, right? That's gospel news. That was the fun message we had last week. We get to celebrate this advent of Jesus' first coming. We celebrate, you know, later on his, his death and his resurrection. That one's fairly easy. It's like knowing December 25th is coming every year. It's a no-brainer. But what about the rest of this genealogy? All these names. How does this list of names possibly prepare us for his coming, let alone his second coming? Well, there are a few technical issues. And those technical issues, actually there's, oh, there's so many technical issues. And if you're really into that, we can talk afterwards. But that's not good sermon stuff. What, what I'm just going to bring up is a few technical issues that kind of shed some light on what, what's going on here. First of all, if you've ever looked at Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, you know that they're not sort of different. They're like radically different. Like hardly share any other names in common. And part of the thinking behind that is that, I'm grossly generalizing here, but that Luke's genealogy is trying to be a little more biological. It's trying to show you know, Jesus' bloodline a little bit more. And Matthew's genealogy is somehow more of a spiritual ancestry. Um, who are the big players that Jesus is coming from? And by putting those names in Matthew's genealogy, or Jesus' line, it's kind of trying to tell us what kind of person he is going to be, what we can expect. Matthew is a smart guy. He knows that his readers are generally smart people and that they know the history. And so Matthew's not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes by switching names around and skipping generations. But Matthew's trying to, to make a point. For example, everybody Matthew was writing to probably knew that Rahab was not the biological mother of Boaz. Rahab lived 200 years before Boaz was even around. But Matthew wants to link Rahab to Jesus' line to show that he's inclusive to outsiders, to people that we would normally not guess would be in Jesus' family. Matthew, here's another thing. He also skips hundreds of years between generations sometimes. His genealogy uh, wasn't a problem for his early readers because that's just what you did. It was the way you wrote a genealogy to make a point. Here's an ex- we don't really have great examples of that in, in, in today's world, but... Um, Corey, for example, is a daughter of the Revolutionary War. Did you guys know that? 
her uncle's all into genealogy and stuff, so he traced their family line back. And she actually, I think, can be traced back to people on the Mayflower or something. She even has a certificate if she ever wants to get it. I don't think we've ever sent off for it. But she's a daughter of the Revolution. Now, is Corey really a daughter of anyone from the Revolutionary War? No, I mean, unless she's like a vampire or a Highlander or something like that. An immortal vampress. Ah, those little holes right here. Yeah. No, no, I mean, but, but we could talk like that, right? We could talk like that, Corey's a daughter of the Revolutionary War, and we've just skipped hundreds of years of, you know, generations there. Kind of makes sense. That's kind of what Matthew is doing here. There's another way Matthew tweaked the genealogy of Jesus to help communicate the importance of his advent. For the most part, Matthew follows the genealogy of kings from the book of Chronicles. From the book of Chronicles. So you could always look that up. But commentator Dale Bruner, I just want to, Dale Bruner, remember that name, because this is his brainchild, this is not my good study. But anyway, I was reading Dale Bruner, and he helped me to see that there are two specific names that Matthew has tweaked in his genealogy. They are, in verse 7, he changes the name of King Asa to Asaph. King Asa to Asaph. And in verse 10, he changes the name of King Ammon to Amos, to Amos. Now, if you have the Pew Bible and you're looking at it, you're like, no, he, there's nothing changed there. It says Asa and it says Ammon. And the reason for that is because those translators weren't as smart as Dale Bruner. No. Uh, a lot of times, uh, like in my Bible, what it has is it does have King Asa and it has Ammon. But then there's a little number by their name and it says go to this middle column. And you look in this middle column and it says in the original language, it says Asaph. And it says Amos. And so sometimes translators didn't really know what to do with that. Some of them, like the ones that translated that Pew Bible, think Matthew probably made a mistake. He didn't copy it right. So he just made a typo. So they changed it to what made sense from the list in Chronicles. Whereas other people that are more of a wooden translation, like New American Standard, say, you know, it doesn't say that in the Greek. It says Asaph and it says Amos. So we're going to take the text for what it actually says in the original manuscripts instead of trying to do spiritual gymnastics with it. And we're going to take it for what it says and we're going to see what, where that leads us tonight. Now, I told you that this genealogy could help us with anticipating the second coming. You're not seeing it yet. Yeah, I know. Here, here's how. Here's how. Most of us struggle with living as if Jesus were going to return in two general ways, right? First of all, one of the ways that we fail at this is we get too fixated on the little things in our day-to-day -day grind. The job, the house, the friends, and all the things that friends do. All the birthday parties and all the, uh, the events. And, and family, right? And uh, like in our house, our kids are little, so they're not doing soccer every weekend. But we've still got dance classes and recitals and, 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 and extended family who expect, hope they're not listening to this, but you know, they all expect a chunk of your time and... Uh, you know, are you going to come into Christmas and are you going to come to Thanksgiving? And, and so family can be wonderful and complicating all at the same time. And we've got things to think about like politics and is North Korea going to get their act together? Can China reel them in or are we going to get in a war again? And we've got, you know, wars and economy and mortgages. We've got everyday stuff, right? And it makes sense. God created us as human beings. He put us here. He knew that, you know, even in the original creation, He... He gave us vocation. He gave us work to do, like we're supposed to do everyday stuff. God made us with these bodies that, that can get sick, that can break down. And so everyday stuff is real stuff. 
But in this season of Advent in particular, we get so busy shopping and juggling our schedules, making sure that we can get to that party or avoid that one. Or maybe we're painfully aware that while others are getting invited to the parties, we're not. So Advent and Christmas season is this intense season where either we're more aware of our loneliness and our lack of material possessions, or we're, we're just burdened by all the options out there. And frankly, besides the technological differences between our world and Matthew's world, we're just the same. Those people had the same problems. They got busy with the day-to-day. And so the first name that Matthew alters in Jesus' genealogy, he changes King Asa's name to Asaph. And I think it helps us prepare, and here's how. Asaph was a famous psalmist. Asaph wrote Psalm 50, and he wrote Psalm 73 through 83. Asaph reminds us that there is so much more to life than what we can see and to what we can touch and to what we can feel and to what we can buy and to what we can sell. That there is a God who not only knows every detail of our lives, but is in control even when our lives feel out of control. That's what Asaph brings to the table. Listen to what he writes in one of his psalms. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph can remind us what's truly important in life. He never denies that people are important. Asaph never denies the realities of life. He, but, but what he does is, He gives us heavenly perspective on those things. He reminds us that there's a God who knows us and loves us. And that this God doesn't have the same definitions of success that the world may have. So I think that Matthew is adding Asaph to Jesus' genealogy to communicate what kind of Messiah Jesus is. He's inclusive to outsiders like Abraham. He's a king from the line of David, and his heart is deeply set on God's agenda, not the agenda of the world where those two contradict. Asaph tells us that to wait well means to worship well. Let me say that again. Asaph tells us that to wait well for the second coming is to worship well. To live out our day-to-day grind with the promise that this is not all there is. I need to be reminded of that. Here are some action steps. First of all, what you're doing right now is an action step. For an hour and a half, and maybe a little more if you stay for food, and maybe a little more if you came five minutes early or something, what you're doing right now is kind of countercultural. Like, why would you come hear some dude talk about a list of names and sing all these songs instead of getting on with your life and doing the day-to-day grind and going to a party or whatever it is you could be doing? So you are taking time out to be here with the community of God, to sing His praises and also to be ministered to, to receive His Word, to try and grow. What you are doing is an awesome action step. There's some other things that you could do to, to let Asaph help you prepare. Um, Those Advent devotionals and the small groups that are going through those, that's just another kind of time out in your week that you could pull away and let all the busyness and activity go on around you 
and get centered and, and allow God to speak into your life and to remind you of what's really important. Hey, here's a novel one. Spending time with Jesus, right? In prayer, in reading scripture. I know, trust me, you think, oh, he's the pastor. He does that all the time. It's a struggle. I'm busy just like everybody else. And so it, it, taking the time, trying to carve it out. If you're not doing it at all, I'm not looking at you. If, if you're not doing it at all, start, start with a couple minutes. Pick up that devotional and just read that one little page a day. I promise you, it will begin to make a difference. I think what really drives me drives me there as I'm thinking about the second coming is will we know Jesus when he gets here? I think that's what Asaph is all about. Will we know Jesus when he gets here? Because you know what? I'm reading in scripture and I see these scribes and these Pharisees, these guys who know, they know the scripture way better than I do probably, probably better than you do. And Jesus is right in their freaking face and they don't see him. They don't get it. Because it's not just about intellect. It's not just about facts that we know. It's about the relational side. So Asaph helps us prepare because he, he calls us to be in relationship with Jesus. Will I know him when he comes? So that's a question I'm leaving, leaving you with. Well, if one way that we fail uh, to prepare for Jesus' second coming is to get too consumed with the day-to-day and missing that heavenly perspective, the other way we often fail is, uh, is, is that we have an overly heavenly perspective. An overly heavenly perspective. One way you can do that is to be the kind of person that, um, you know, is always contemplative and, you know, you, you shut yourself in a room and you pray for six hours and you've, everything's great, right? Because you never have to interact with the world. I'm going to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, that's not most of us. So I put it out there for you, those of you who that's you, and now I'm going to move on to reality. You're probably thinking, that's not me. I don't know when the last time I thought about heaven was. Huh? Let's be honest, we don't think about heaven very much because whether we know it or not, each of us is kind of trying to create our own slice of it right here on earth. Even in this economy, we live in one of the most decadent cultures of all time. The amount of comforts and technologies that we take for granted every day seems like an absolute utopia to billions of people. I'm not talking about a hundred years ago, I'm talking about right now. The amount of food that gets thrown away at the local casino down I-5. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's, it's like heaven in a, in a dumpster for so many people, right? Hear me. There is nothing, nothing wrong with enjoying ourselves. There is nothing wrong with celebrations. There is nothing wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with sex in a marriage relationship. In fact, remember God invented that? He, he knew it was going to feel good when he invented it. I'm just saying that sometimes we think like we can't even enjoy that. Um, the problem is not the good gifts that God gives us. The problem is when we allow our appetites for those gifts to grow out of control to the point where we are hurting ourselves and hurting others. Now, Matthew has done something in this genealogy of Jesus that's interesting. He changes the name of King Ammon to the name of Amos. And Amos was a prophet. In fact, of all the prophets, Amos might be, have the most concentration in his short book of oracles of social justice compared to all the other prophets. Through Amos, God communicates his deep, 
concern for the poor and the fatherless and anyone who is suffering at the expense of the corrupt. Amos wrote during the 8th century BC at a time when Israel was experiencing a great season of bounty, at least relative to the rest of their history. But what God couldn't stand wasn't the fact that they were prosperous. I, you know, I think God wants them to be prosperous. I think God loves it. He loves, he's a generous God. He wants us to be prosperous. But what God couldn't stand was when this nation prospered, only a select few were reaping the benefits. And these select few, instead of helping the poor and standing up for the widows and the fatherless and those who could not stand up for themselves in court, they just got fatter and richer. And then the worst part is, according to Amos, is that they would come and that they would worship God and they would sing songs and they would hear sermons and think, and they would prepare sermons. I want to put myself in there. And they would think they're keeping their eyes on heaven while people all around them are suffering. They were longing for this day called the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord was, is this day when Yahweh Himself would come and bring deliverance from all their enemies. But what they didn't understand, and what I think the challenge for us is, is that this day of the Lord was not necessarily going to be a good thing for them. Let me read you an excerpt from Amos 5, 18-25, and this is from Eugene Peterson's The Message, which just helps it give it a little new life for us. Woe to you, all who want this day of the Lord, or judgment day. Why would you want to see God? Why would you want Him to come? Because when God comes, it will be bad news before good news. The worst of times, not the best of times. Here's what it's like. A man runs from a lion right into the jaws of a bear. A woman goes home after a hard day's work and is raped by a neighbor. At God's coming, we face hard reality, not fantasy. A black cloud, not a silver lining. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and your conventions. And I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes and your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? You know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. The second coming of Jesus is going to be a great day of deliverance for all who put their trust in Jesus and love and obey Him. But if we find that like the Israelites, we're just going through the motions thinking we're safe because we go to church once in a while, thinking I'm safe because I preach sermons once in a while. I think we're deceiving ourselves. Matthew's genealogy is a warning for us to be ready. He tells us that the way to be ready is have our eyes set on heaven like Asaph and to let heaven's agenda for the world seek justice and mercy and walk humbly with our God like Amos would say. And I just want to say, many of you are doing this type of thing already. You're already following Jesus. You're serving the poor. You're walking with the fatherless, ministering to the lonely. 
by the nature of, of your work. I just know so many of you that, you know, if you're, you're in healthcare and you're helping people's bodies all the time or you're in education or whatever it is you do, you have contact. And I know that you're trying to do your job or your school or your mothering or your fathering or grandparenting. You're trying to do these things in Christ's name and in, in His love. And if you want an opportunity to engage at an entry-level ministry to the needy, get involved with this uh, adopt-a-family thing that Morgan is helping to structure. It's awesome, easy way to get involved. But chances are, if you're like me, I mean, you're already involved in some way. You've got some sort of prayer life going on. You read the Bible once in a while. You're here at church, obviously. You're serving in some way. But I don't know about you, but I, I still feel convicted I don't live with the constant perspective that Jesus could return at any moment. And I've got two pieces of good news for you, if you feel that way. First of all, I think it's quite possible that we can gain this perspective if we take Asaph's advice and spend some time with Jesus. That question, will I know him when he gets here? That can easily be a yes if we start to know him now. And Amos' advice to engage in the work of Jesus, you know, that's stuff, that's stuff we can do, right? So we can gain some more of that eternal perspective. But the second piece of good news is that Jesus' mercy triumphs over his judgment. There's something cool in the structure of the genealogy I just wanted to point out. You know, it's broken into these three main sections. So the first one is, you know, you've got this... Uh, Biblos Geneseos, this book of Genesis, this new beginning, and it starts off with, you know, here's this Messiah coming from the line of Abraham and David, and it's da-da-da-da, and it goes uh, from Abraham all the way to David, and you're thinking, this is awesome, and then the second section, and it's all this screwing up until they get to this deportation in Babylon. And if you don't know that story, that's just this horrible story of Israel basically not heeding Amos' advice, Oppressing the poor, not working for justice, and God allows them to go to captivity. It was a horrible, horrible time in their history. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, Jesus, why is your genealogy pointing down in the second strophe, in the second section? Well, the cool thing is, is that in the third section of the genealogy, it comes out of the deportation to Babylon. And if you look at it closely, there's not 14 generations there in the third section. There's 13 and it ends with Joseph, who is not the biological father of Jesus, but he's the adopted father, the husband of Mary. Joseph is only known because of Mary. Mary is only known because the Spirit of the living God chose to deposit the living God in her womb. This whole genealogy points to Jesus. He is the beginning of that 14th generation. The whole thing points to his grace. His grace is new every morning, just like the song. Great is his faithfulness, even when ours is lacking. Great is his faithfulness, especially, especially when ours is lacking. So let's open our hearts to Jesus tonight. If that's something you want to do, join me in prayer.